Louis uh, Grizzard. Do you know that name? Louis Grizzard? <clears throat> he was uh, an American writer <clears throat> and a real funny guy with a, a, a southern, a strong southern slant on life. And in his book, <clears throat> The Last Bus to Albuquerque, he tells a story that, that prompts a question we need to ask in the church. So here's the story. It's a funny story. <clears throat> and he says, For weeks, I have been seeing a television commercial for this certain chain of restaurants. The commercial claimed the restaurant served home cooking, the kind mom used to do. Now, I grew up at a, at a fried chicken, pork chops, pot roast, and fresh vegetable table with cornbread or mama's home-baked biscuits on the side. I must have this sort of food at least once a week or be struck by the dreaded bland food poisoning. So I gave this chain a try. I, wa- I walked into one of its restaurants and looked over the menu. There was no fried chicken or pork chops, but there was country fried steak and pot roast. I decided to go for the pot roast. Can I get mashed potatoes and gravy with that pot roast, I asked the waitress. Sure, she answered. The pot roast was so-so. The gravy was suspect. One bite of the mashed potatoes and I knew. I called the waitress back over. I would take it as a personal favor if you would be perfectly honest with me, I said. These mashed potatoes came out of a box, didn't they? The waitress dropped her eyes for a brief second. Then she looked up and said apologetically, yes, they did. I hate mashed potatoes that come out of a box. When God created the mashed potato, I am certain the Bible points out somewhere he had no intention of anybody goofing around and coming up with mashed potatoes from a box. He meant for real potatoes to be used. You peel them, you cut them into little pieces and put them in a pot of boiling water. You put in some salt and pepper and then you add some butter or maybe even a little sour cream. And then you beat them and stir them until you have biblically correct mashed potatoes. I love that. Biblically correct mashed potatoes. So when I paid my bill... 
I had a word with the assistant manager. But he took my money anyway. May the Lord forgive you, you potato ruiner, I said on my way out. Mashed potatoes from a box? What's wrong with this country? That and canned biscuits. Soybean anything. Frozen french fries. Fake flowers and tanning salons. What's real anymore? In a roundabout way, Peter is asking and answering that question as it pertains to the church. What's real anymore? Because the false teachers in his day were not God's real messengers. And they were not teaching the real gospel. They didn't speak for God as they had claimed. Instead, they did everything they could to confuse believers by teaching heresies that they presented alongside the truth to give the false impression that their teaching was inspired by God. These false teachers, like mashed potatoes from a box, were cheap imitations of the real messengers of God. And they were dangerous. Preying upon those who were not careful and cautious. So Peter challenges the churches and us as well to know exactly who and what is real based on the truth found in God's Word. Now last week, we began 2 Peter chapter 2, where Peter introduced us to these false teachers. And this morning, we're going to continue to look at them. So if you have your Bible... Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll begin with verses 12 through 14. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verses 12 through 14. Are we there? I just don't hear Bibles moving. It's just, yeah. (laughs) All this electronic stuff. Okay, here we go. Verse 12. But these, referring to false teachers, but these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed." Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing 
unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Okay, let's stop there. There is a lot in this passage where it seems that Peter is focused more on the sinful behaviors of these false teachers rather than on their doctrines we considered last week. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. And it's the wrong living that Peter now wants to focus on. Okay? Peter begins by telling us that these false teachers operate from instinct instead of reason. Like animals, they, are no, they no longer see the difference between right and wrong. Instead, they are controlled by sinful impulses and they do what comes natural to them. We're told they make a lot of noise about things they know nothing about. Things of a supernatural nature. Deceiving others and ironically even deceiving themselves. They had twisted and distorted the truth so much to make it say what they wanted it to say. They have actually come to believe it themselves. They are caught in their own web of lies leading to their corruption and their eternal destruction. Peter says they they revel in the daytime and that needs a little bit of explaining. The early church had times of food and fellowship just like we do in our church. And these gatherings were called love feasts. Love feasts. Jude, whose letter is very similar to 2 Peter chapter 2, mentions these love feasts that were enjoyed in connection with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It was a time when the poorer believers could enjoy a decent meal because of the generosity of the Christians who were better off. It was supposed to be a time of true fellowship. However, the false teachers used the love feasts and other gatherings as well as opportunities to impress people and to flaunt their wealth. They used this time to seek out their prey to openly flirt with women, to recruit people to support them and their cause, and they turn these gatherings into the kind of parties that you would typically only see at night in the cover of darkness. In other words, they had no shame. They didn't even hide their sin which seems to suggest they taught that the grace of God was a license to do whatever you wanted to do. In verse 14, if there was any thought that these false teachers might just be misguided or backslidden Christians, I think Peter gives us a clue they were not. 
Peter tells us these false teachers were habitual sinners. Their way of life was characterized by sin. Their eyes were constantly looking for sin, viewing every woman as an object with whom they might satisfy their sexual desires. And unfortunately, they succeeded in enticing some. That word enticing paints a picture of these false teachers moving amongst the church like fishermen around a lake, casting one lure after another, trying to entice fish to bite. And although the lures are fake, their bait is so enticing that hungry fish will still bite and get hooked. So these false teachers are fishing, and they're really good at it, and Peter tells us why. Peter says these false teachers are trained in greed. Like an athlete trains for a sport. They have mastered their craft. They have honed their skills in the art of persuasion, and they figured out who to fish for, the unstable, the weak in faith, the troubled, the struggling, the lonely, and the unwary, hooking them all for the purpose of satisfying their own personal greed. They want more. They want more power, more prestige, more possessions, and more pleasure. Then Peter gives us an example. I love this example. Using the sinful behavior of an Old Testament character as a reference. Look at verses 15 and 16. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgressions for a mute donkey speaking with a voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Balaam like the false teachers in Peter's day, is an example of a person who leads people astray for their own personal gain and satisfaction. And his story is found in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. But I will give you a summary of what occurred, so no need to turn there. Balaam was a Gentile diviner. We might say he was a prophet for profit. Does that make sense? He was a prophet for profit, who was known in the area for giving curses and blessings. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and defeated the Amorites, the king of the Moabites who is Balak, 
heard about what had happened. And he was afraid of the Israelites. So he tried to hire Balaam to curse the Israelites and bring victory to the Moabites. Are you following me so far? Okay. So Balaam, this diviner, this this prophet, prays to God about whether or not he should curse the Israelites as the king requested. And God said, don't even think about it, for they are blessed. God forbade Balaam from cursing the Israelites or even going with the men to Moab. Balaam got his answer from God. He knew the truth, it was clear, and the matter should have been closed right then. But the Moabite king would not give up. So he offered Balaam more money and greater honor. Which prompted Balaam to go pray about it again. Really. He's got to go pray about it again. Balaam had already been given his answer by God. He knew God's will in the matter. But Balaam was motivated by greed. And God knew it. So God told Balaam, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you shall you do. Well, Balaam jumped at the chance because he was greedy. And on his way to Moab, the donkey he was riding saw an angel blocking their path, and turned off the road into a field. Balaam struck his donkey and returned her to the road. Then, on a narrow path between two walls, the donkey once again saw this angel. This time, the donkey pushed up against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot. So he struck her again. Finally, the angel blocked the way where it was really narrow. So the donkey simply laid down on the road. Which angered Balaam even more. As he struck his donkey, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you? that you have struck me these three times? The donkey said this. Balaam doesn't even seem phased that his donkey just spoke to him. Instead, he responded angrily that she had made a fool of him and he wished he could kill her. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel standing there with his sword drawn in his hand and Balaam hit the ground in fear. Then the angel explained 
that the donkey had seen him. And if she had not stopped, the angel would have killed Balaam and would have let her go. Balaam immediately recognized his sin and offered to turn back. But the angel said, go with the men, but only speak the word that I tell you. Well, with this new insight, Balaam arrived in Moab and instead of cursing the Israelites as the Moabite king requested, Balaam blessed them three times. Of course, this angered the king. However, the king did not leave empty-handed. Balaam gave him something he liked, advice in how to defeat the Israelites. And he essentially told the king, if you can't beat them, join them. Take some of your pretty pagan women and have them parade before the men of Israel enticing them and seducing them into sexual immorality and intermarriage. And since these women are worshipers of false gods and pagan idols, they will introduce false worship and pagan practices into the tribes of Israel. Unfortunately, this plan worked all too well and God's people were seduced and enticed into sin and they became corrupted. Like Balaam, the false teachers in Peter's day already knew the truth. But they made an intentional choice to disregard it. And just like Balaam, the false teachers were motivated by greed and they enticed and corrupted others through sensuality. Then Peter says in verses 17 through 19, speaking about these false teachers, these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. That's not good. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he will be enslaved. Okay. These false teachers are smooth talkers. They seemed enlightened. They made a lot of claims and a lot of promises, but all of them were empty. They were like 
400-pound men in girdles trying to sell you a diet plan. Their teaching did not work for them, and they will not help others. Peter described them as springs that had run dry. They were like storm clouds that provided no rain for the fields. They couldn't deliver But people still followed them as they twisted their gracious Christian freedom into something it was not. They taught that freedom in Christ was a license to do whatever a person wanted to do and keep in mind who these false teachers are teaching. These were the early churches. And many of these people were new Christians, weak in faith, who came from pagan backgrounds where engaging in immoral practices was a routine part of their pagan worship. These false teachers knew this. So with a promise of freedom, these false teachers were enslaving these impressionable and vulnerable people all over again through the same sinful and immoral habits that they had just tried to escape. True spiritual freedom in Christ is not the right to do as you please under grace. Rather, it is the right and the power to do as you should do based on God's word. No one has the right to do as they please unless they please to do what is right, according to God's eyes. Okay, let's look at our last passage. Verses 20 through 22. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its vomit. It's kind of gross. And... A sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Okay. This is a difficult passage for many, largely because it is often taken out of context, put in a vacuum, and people try to make it say something it just doesn't say. In context, this passage is talking about false teachers. This entire passage is about false teachers. They are Peter's main focus, and that's who the they are in this passage, false teachers. 
Peter goes on and describes these false teachers as those who had knowledge about Christ. In the same way Judas had knowledge about Christ. They professed to be followers. They claimed to have had some spiritual experience. They even used church words. And if for a time, and that's a big if, if they escaped the defilements of this world by turning to religion and going through the motions, that's still not a real relationship with Christ. And in time, the truth is revealed. In time their real character and their true nature becomes evident. They rejected Christ as Savior and Lord. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They returned to their sinful lifestyle and therefore gave proof they were never saved in the first place. The Apostle John speaks about this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. And he says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown they all are not of us. John is speaking about the perseverance of the saints. And because these false teachers abandoned the faith, rejected Christ, and denied the truth, they proved they were never truly born again in Christ. I was reminded... Of the parable, you know this parable, of the wheat and tares. Told by Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. Where an enemy had sowed tares in a wheat field belonging to a farmer. Tares are a toxic weed. Sometimes called false wheat. Because they look just like actual wheat at first. But it's not until they produce grain that their difference really becomes obvious. The wheat grain is brown and it's edible. The grain of a tear is purple and it's bitter and it shouldn't be eaten. The tear looks exactly like wheat at first, but it was never a wheat plant. And in time, the fact becomes clearly obvious by its fruit. Just like a tear, in time, the true character of these false teachers becomes evident as they drift back to their worldly and corrupt ways. And according to Peter, because they knew the truth and rejected it, Their fate is worse than never knowing the truth at all. And let me explain that. 
everyone is accountable for the truth they have received about Christ. And the more that is revealed to you, the greater the responsibility and the greater the judgment for rejecting the truth about Christ. And what I think Paul is saying is that these teachers knew about Christ. And as a result, their fate is worse than not knowing him at all. If you recall, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, when Jesus spoke about Judas, he said, The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. The knowledge of Christ increases our responsibility to respond to him. And like these false teachers, it also increases our judgment if we know about Christ and still reject him. In time, Our character and our nature will reveal who we really are and what we truly believe. And that's what Peter is talking about when he mentions dogs returning to their vomit and pigs going back into the mud. It's in their true nature. They may profess to be Christians and they may go through the religious motions However, their false teaching and their sinful lifestyle give evidence that they never truly belonged to Christ. No one ever expected it would happen. Especially with this model congregation. They provided a heated swimming pool for underprivileged kids, horses for inner city children to ride, gave scholarships for deserving students, and provided housing for senior citizens. They even had an animal shelter medical facility, an outpatient care facility, and a drug rehabilitation program. Walter Mondale, who recently passed, wrote that the pastor was an inspiration to us all. The Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare cited the pastor's outstanding contributions. He knew how to inspire hope. He was committed to people in need. He counseled prisoners and juvenile delinquents. He started a job placement center. He opened rest homes and homes for the mentally ill. He had a health clinic. 
He organized the Vocational Training Center. He provided free legal aid. He founded a community center. He preached about God. He even claimed to cast out demons, do miracles, and heal. Lofty words. A lengthy resume for what appeared to be a mighty spiritual leader in his church. Where is that congregation today? What is it doing now? The church is dead. Literally. Dead. Death occurred the day the pastor called the members to the pavilion. They heard his hypnotic voice over the the speaker system. And from all corners of the farm they came. He sat in his large chair and spoke into a handheld microphone about the beauty of death and the certainty that they would meet again. The people were surrounded by armed guards. A vat of cyanide-laced Kool-Aid was brought out. Most of the members drank the poison with no resistance. Those who did resist were forced to drink or they were shot as they tried to run away. First, the babies and children, about 80 in number, were given the fatal drink. Then the adults, women and men, leaders and followers, and finally, the pastor. Everything was calm for a few minutes. Then the convulsions began. Screams filled the sky. Mass confusion broke out. And in a few minutes, it was over. The members of the People's Temple Christian Church were all dead. All 780 of them. So was their leader, Jim Jones. Mark it down. And be on your guard, for there are false teachers in the Christian community. Using the false teacher mathematics, they add heresy to Scripture to support their agenda. They subtract from the deity and the completed work of Christ. They multiply ways to be right with God and they divide the church. It was true in Peter's day. It was true in 1978 with Jim Jones in Jonestown. And it's just as true today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord so much for the truth of your word. I thank you, Lord, that you make your word clear. I thank you, Father, that you give us insight into who we are, to who you are. And you also give us insight to those who profess to know you,
but do not. I thank you, Lord God, that our, that our fruit declares who we are. You say we will know a tree by its fruit. Clear and simple words. Father, thank you for your truth. Father, help us to know your word, to get into your word, to know your truth. Give us a zeal and a passion to be in your word. Help us start somewhere. Father, help us to, help us to get into a routine, into being in your word on a daily, daily basis. Help us to know your truth. Father, guard our hearts from those who would wish to distort the truth, your truth. Help us to be careful. Help us to be cautious, Lord. And help us, Lord, to run when we, when we hear something that is not true. Father, may you be honored and glorified in what we do, what we say, and how we live our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Jim Jones is, uh, is a poster child for what Peter taught us. Trish and I are watching a documentary about two weeks ago on Jim Jones. And it, it was almost, almost verbatim how he started out with these strong Christian teachings. And then you, and then you listen to some of his, some of his sermons and how he started, he shifted to sensuality. He became very authoritative. I speak for God. Only listen to me. Those were his words. And people just, just ate, it, ate it up. This week I was, I was actually just, I don't know why I was doing this. I was thinking of the configuration of this room. I don't know why. I don't know why. But I, but I noticed my, my chair is up here. And so, as you can see, I'm a little, I'm separate from, just from my seating. I'm, I'm set apart, right? Does that make sense? But if you also notice, there's no stage here where I am elevated. There's no stage here. I walk just like you do. I'm trying to follow Christ just like you are. Ups and downs, roller coaster of life, I experience it just like you do. And I say all this <laughs> because I, it, I want to make sure this comes out right. Please don't follow me. Please don't follow me. I will let you down. My job is to point you to Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Not to me, to Jesus. That's what I have to do. And when I cease doing that, I need to leave. 
We follow Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and our Savior. He is the one who went to the cross. It was not me. He went to the cross for my sin, your pastor's sin. And he went to the cross for your sin. And then he rose again on the third day to prove everything that he said was real. It was true. Everything he claimed about himself was a 100% accurate. And we can trust his promises. We follow him. He is true. He is our Lord and Savior. Don't follow your pastor. Follow him. I would ask you this morning to be obedient to him. And however, however he speaks to your heart, I would ask you to be obedient to him. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Maybe he's speaking to your heart that this is, this is where you land. This is where you're to bloom. Then I'd ask you to respond to him. Maybe through the course of my sermon, you're starting to have questions. You know what? My life really hasn't changed from before I knew Christ. Do I really know him? Am I just going through the religious motions? Is that what I'm doing? Is he really in my heart? Only you can answer that. But I would be more than happy to work through that with you. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me introduce you to him, please. Or maybe there's something else. I'll be up here. I'm also here on Mondays if we want to talk about something. However, however the Lord is moving you, I just ask you to be obedient to him and respond in obedience. I'd like to pray for our offering this morning and also pray for our, our uh, love feast, <laughs> our fellowship afterwards. Uh, Father, I thank you uh, so much again for, uh, for bringing us here this morning. Lord, I just pray that your words would just continue to, to permeate uh, in our hearts and, and uh, bounce around in our minds, Father. Uh, again, Lord, I just pray that you would just give us a, a hunger for the truth of your word. And Lord, I just, I just, uh, Father, just give that to us. We need it. Father, I thank you for uh, the time you give us to, to give back to you. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would uh, help us to give from a, a cheerful heart. Lord, I pray that you'd bless the gifts that are given, that you'd bless the giver. And Lord, I thank you so much. Help us as a church, Lord God, to, to wisely use your money that you, you bring into the storehouse. And Lord, for our fellowship uh, afterwards, Father, I, I pray that you bless the, the food to our bodies. Lord, bless, uh, bless the, those who prepared food. And Lord, I just pray that you would also bless our fellowship together. May you be honored and glorified through it. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.